Please be seated. Grab your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Every 10 years, the United States conducts a census. You may remember we just had one in 2020. We fill out a form and give the government information about ourselves, and they use the numbers to determine all sorts of government stuff. Uh, The questions are pretty standard and have been consistent over the years. You put your name, your, your birth date, your marital status. But there's one question that has changed significantly over the years and changes almost every time, in fact, and that is the question of race. The very first census in the year 1790, there were three options for selecting your race. You could check free white all other free persons, or slave. 2020, there were 14 options for race with specific designations under each one of those, a separate question about Hispanic origin, and a blank line that just says some other race. The the census doesn't just speak to the fact that we're becoming more diverse as a nation, but it's also a testimony of America's complicated history with race and ethnicity. Checking a box on a census form may seem like a minor thing, but it actually speaks to how we define and label ourselves and how we define and label others. And it's not an overstatement to say labeling one another based on race and ethnicity has had a massive impact on our history. And it still has an impact today, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. You know, I'm not sure there's a topic more, uh, a topic in America today that produces more angst and anxiety than race. Uh, we live in a divided nation, and views on race are one of the big causes of that division. I spend a lot of time thinking about these topics, and to be honest, I feel like I have a lot to learn. So I really appreciate your grace this morning, your, your trust in me with this. But, but it seems to me that there are kind of these two big opposing views concerning race that dominate the conversation. On one side, you have those who say that race is not important at all. This side argues that we should all be colorblind, not seeing or acknowledging racial differences. If we would just stop talking about racism, it would go away. This side would say that racism is no longer a problem today. Rather, it's being manufactured to further a a particular political agenda. Any racial disparities and inequalities in society today are owed to people's own choices. Then on the other side, you have those who say that race is very important. This side argues that a person's identity is their race. We we need to talk more about racism because it's the biggest injustice in the world today. All of the racial disparities and inequalities in society today are a result uh, of oppression from those in power, the oppressors. So what we need to do is dismantle unjust systems and institutions and radically remake society to be more equitable. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm painting with a really broad brush here. There are obviously people who fall everywhere in between those two sides, but these two views seem to be the ones who are the loudest. They seem to dominate the conversation, leaving little room for nuance or disagreement. And that explains the division we see. So what are we to think as Christians? 
Some would say to me that we shouldn't even talk about this at all. That this is a distraction or it's too political or it's too controversial. And to be totally honest with you, I think you guys know I'm, I'm a natural people pleaser. Like in my flesh, I, I want to avoid difficult topics and just preach John 3.16 like every Sunday. Okay. But I hope you've seen from this series that we need to talk about these things. We need the truth of Scripture to help us engage these cultural issues. And when we avoid tough subjects in church, we communicate to people that God has nothing to say about them or that God is uninterested in the questions society wrestles with. The local church has got to be a place where we can talk about anything and most importantly, a place where we can learn to have differing opinions and not label each other a heretic. Listen to me. Unity does not mean sameness. Unity does not mean we agree on everything. So yes, this is a difficult topic, but it's one we must talk about. And I believe one we need to view through the lens of the image of God in Scripture. And that's the goal of the entire series is to see the vast implications of what's called the Imago Dei. We've learned so far that God created people, all people, in his image. He designed us to reflect him and to relate to him. But sin has damaged our ability to do that. So God sent his son Jesus who is the image of God. And it's through him we're saved. And we learn to image God as we were created. So in light of that, let's walk through a familiar story this morning, and then we'll come in at the end with our three questions we do each week. But look with me at John chapter 4. We'll start in verses 1 through 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. These verses right here only make sense with a little bit of a geography lesson. The nation of Israel, you may know, is kind of a tall rectangle shape between the Mediterranean Sea on the left and the Jordan River on the right. At the top of that rectangle was Galilee, the region that Jesus grew up in where Nazareth was located. At the bottom of the rectangle was Judea, where Jerusalem was located, the heart of the Jewish nation. And then in the middle, between those two regions, was the region of Samaria. If you grew up in church, you probably remember learning about the Samaritans. In the Old Testament time, this region was a part of the land that the Assyrians invaded and took into exile. The king of Assyria then sent some of his people to live in that land, and so over time, the Jewish people who were left there and the Assyrian people who moved there intermingled. After a few generations, they began to look different and talk different. They had different traditions and customs. They still considered themselves Jewish, but they had their own version of the Pentateuch and they had their own temple. And for the Jewish people, that was the ultimate betrayal. Ethnic purity was important to them as they viewed non-Jews as pagans and Gentiles. The Samaritans then were, were sellouts, traitors, and thus conflict became the norm. Samaritans hated Jews. Jews hated Samaritans. We even have historical record of violence breaking out between the two groups so bad that the Romans had to come in and break it up. 
This is why when the most devoted of Jewish people traveled from Judea down south to Galilee up north, they took the long way around. They crossed over the Jordan River so as not to go anywhere near the Samaritan people and risk being defiled by them. And I think it's from this that we can learn something that is true of all of human history. Because we live in a fallen, sinful world, people who are different don't tend to get along. When two groups of people look different and talk different and dress different and believe different, you can guarantee there will be some issues. Each group will tend to believe that their group is better, superior, smarter, more valuable, and they will then seek to harm or just change the other group. And we can call that racism, we can call it ethnic partiality, prejudice, whatever you want to call it. But because of sin, it is as common of a problem as lying and stealing. And if you study history, it has happened all over the world, and it still happens today. We've said in this series that the greatest atrocities in world history have one thing in common. One group decided another group was inferior or not human. They were denied the image of God based on some quality they held. And then came events like slavery or the Holocaust. What begins as a simple evaluation of another person has almost always led to the harm of that other person. So just, just a basic study of history, a basic understanding of human depravity tells us that this has always been and will always be a sin issue that we deal with. This is why it's so foolish that some would say today that racism is just not a problem anymore. It's arrogant to think that somehow we have done what no, no one else in history has been able to do. Now, have we, have we made great progress in our own nation from where we started? Yes, I believe we have. Are there some who exploit and exaggerate this issue for their own unbiblical agenda? Yes, there are. But I don't need a political theory or a social theory to tell me what I clearly see in God's word. And worst of all, what I've seen in my own life. I know racism and ethnic partiality is still a problem because I've been a part of it myself. As a kid, no one ever sat me down and taught me to judge people by their skin color or their accent or beliefs. Quite the opposite, my parents taught me to love everyone, to treat all people the same. But somewhere along the way, I learned to think of some people as inferior to me. I grew up in a county in Tennessee named after Nathan Bedford Forrest, who founded the KKK. And in my town, we in the majority didn't physically harm minorities. We didn't think of ourselves as racist. We didn't keep people of color from voting or owning a business or anything like that. But the idea that being white was superior still came out at times. It came out in the jokes that we told. I learned jokes about black people, Hispanics, Asians, Jews, Muslims, the poor, you name it. It came out when my sister invited a black friend to our church and people left because of it. And it came out clearest of all when people of two different skin tones decided to date. I had friends who were told by their parents, you can be friends with them, but we don't marry them. Now, maybe your upbringing was different. 
Maybe you come from somewhere where everyone is completely equal and treated the same by everyone. Maybe you've never had a degrading thought about another person because of how they look. If so, maybe you should be up here preaching this message. Because I know the sins of my heart that I've had to repent of. I believe this is something that affects all of us. It's not just white and black, though we have a unique history here in America we cannot ignore. But it's all sorts of division in all sorts of places for all sorts of reasons. And we see it right here on the pages of Scripture. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. But Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It's interesting that it says that in the text. Why did he have to pass through Samaria? Was he in a hur- Samaria? Was he in a hurry? Jesus was never in a hurry. No, Jesus had to pass through Samaria because he had a divine appointment. Let's see what it was. Look at verses 5 through 7. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Again, cultural context is needed to see what's going on here. Jesus takes a break at a well. It's not an unusual thing to do. But he stops at a time of day in which no one else would have been there. The sixth hour was noon, the hottest part of the day. Women who typically had the responsibility to draw water, they would have made their trip early in the morning or late in the afternoon. No one would have picked the hottest part of the day to go to the well. But Jesus did. Why? He had an appointment. And a Samaritan woman did. Why? Well, let's find out. Look at verses 7 through 9. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaritan, of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus right here is breaking every social taboo you could imagine. We've already talked about one. Jews did not talk to Samaritans. But it's not just that. Think back to our series through Leviticus where we talked about all the rules they followed concerning clean and unclean. A Jew would never drink after a Samaritan. It was defiling. But there's even more. We also know in the first century for a man to talk to a woman that wasn't his wife in public like this was a no-no especially a woman like this one who clearly was some sort of outcast. And yet Jesus had the audacity to say to her, can I have a drink? The woman acknowledges the strangeness. John, who wrote this, acknowledges the strangeness. But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Look at verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
Jesus compares the water and the well to the spiritual water he offers, which is eternal life. He says it's like water. It, it satisfies it. It gives people life. But the Samaritan woman isn't quite getting it yet. So Jesus kicks things up a notch. Look at verses 16 through 19. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And I've always thought that was kind of a funny response. Like he totally calls her out and she's like, sir, I think you may be a prophet. <laughs> we got to understand Jesus is not being mean to her here. You can kind of read it that way. But by calling her out, Jesus is revealing who he is and her need for him. He knows her. He knows what she needs. He wants her to see that she's a sinner who needs a savior and he is that savior. But he has something else he needs to address. Look at verses 20 through 26. Our fathers, the woman's talking again, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Don't miss. Man, this is crazy. There's so much here. This Samaritan woman, she, she's bringing up the differences in worship between Samaritans and Jews. And we, we said there's already distinct cultural, historical, religious differences. But Jesus brings the two groups together. He says, yes, this all starts in Jerusalem with the Jewish people, but things are about to change. He says, the hour is coming when because of me, it doesn't matter who worships or where they worship, but only that they worship in spirit and truth. And then Jesus does something that's actually very rare in the Gospels. He reveals that he's the Messiah. And he reveals this to a Samaritan woman. That There's so much significance in that. But let's keep going. Verses 27 to 42. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor." Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And again, don't miss this. Jesus not only shares salvation with the Samaritan woman, but he shares it with the whole town of Samaritans. He even goes into their town and stays there two days, eating their food, sleeping in their homes, which would have been unheard of for a Jewish man to do. So we see in this story, yes, the radical grace of Jesus seeking and saving the lost. But what does this story tell us about the image of God and ethnic unity? Let's ask our three questions we do each week and see. Here's the first. Number one, what did Jesus teach? And I want to say something about that phrase, ethnic unity. There's a lot of ways we can speak about the problem of racial division in society today, but I prefer personally to say that our goal is ethnic unity. One of the reasons I like that term is because when the Bible speaks of differences between people, it doesn't use the term race. Historically, race has been defined biologically. It's been used to categorize people based on physical characteristics, especially their skin color. But the term the Bible uses aligns more closely with what we call in English ethnicity, and that's a bit different from race. Ethnicity is defined as someone's cultural heritage, where they are from, the language they speak, their ancestry. And that's the way the Bible speaks of people. The Old Testament talks of people belonging to clans that make up different nations. We see that in Genesis as Noah's sons spread over the earth. And what we see is that, yes, different nations have different physical characteristics, different cultures, but we actually have much more in common than we do different. Take, for example, the idea of race. The way we think of race today was created to justify why one group of people was inferior to the other. For example, Hitler and the Nazis believed the Jewish people were of an inferior race to the Aryans. They were less human and therefore were harming the world by continuing to live. Scientists even tried to find reason that people with darker skin had less desirable traits, something genetically inferior about them. This is what led to the field of eugenics, which is like breeding for humans. This is also how we ended up with abortion in America. Planned Parenthood, the largest abortion provider today, was founded by Margaret Sanger, who advocated for eugenics or for ridding society of these inferior races. But what biology has actually found is that there really is only one race, and that's the human race. It's confirmed what we know to be from Scripture, that we all come from the same common ancestors, Adam and Eve. We're all made in the image of God, and therefore we're all equally worthy of dignity and respect. Jesus affirmed the same thing. We've said time and time again in this series, Jesus saw people as people, rich or poor, tax collector or zealot, man or woman, child or elderly, disabled or abled, Samaritan or Jew. Jesus saw all people as having the same problem, sin, and needing the same solution, <clears throat> him and his forgiveness. So what did Jesus teach? Here's the answer. Jesus taught 
that the kingdom is open to everyone. We see this in the story with the woman at the well. Jesus says, whoever, anyone who drinks of his living water will have eternal life. In another place, Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then he called his disciples to make disciples of all nations, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So no matter who someone is, no matter where they come from, what language they speak, what they look like, what they believe or what they've done, we're all made in the image of God. We have all sinned and fallen short. And we can all call in the name of Jesus to be saved. Here's our second question, number two. What did Jesus do? And think for a moment of what we saw Jesus do in this story. He sought out someone who needed him. He shared the good news of eternal life. Yes, these were things Jesus did a lot. But what makes this story so significant is the context in which Jesus did these things. What did Jesus do that makes this story so uniquely powerful? Here's the answer. Jesus crossed ethnic boundaries. Literally, the Jewish people had certain boundaries they would not cross. They would make their trip longer than it had to be just to avoid Samaria. But Jesus intentionally went through Samaria. He intentionally sought out this woman so he could intentionally take the gospel to people outside of Israel. And though the disciples were shocked by this, they really shouldn't have been. It's what the Old Testament predicted would happen all along. God's original promise to Abraham, which we talked about earlier, he told him, he told Abraham that through him, he would bless all the nations on the earth. So God's plan has always been to break down barriers between people groups and make one new people who are the people of God. And we know that's what happened. Jesus expanded his ministry to Samaritans, Canaanites, Greeks, Romans, and then on Pentecost, the gospel went to all nations. That made diversity one of the defining marks of the early church. And I believe it should be something we strive for today. Look, I know that word diversity gets thrown around a lot. It can mean a lot of different things. I'm not talking about meeting some kind of quota or being diverse just to be trendy. But we should strive to be at least as diverse as our community is. Why? Because it shows that we're actually reaching the people God has placed around us in Olathe. It shows that we're accurately representing our community. And most importantly, it shows the unity of the gospel. In the 2020 census, which again uses the category of race, Olathe was 71% white, 12% Hispanic, 6% black, and 5% Asian. We know we aren't the most diverse city in America. But we have a lot of people from different people groups living in our neighborhoods, in our communities. And when all those different groups come together for one purpose, to bring glory to Jesus, it gives a strong witness to the lost. It shows people that, all the, that although the rest of the world is divided, that's what they're used to seeing, that we are unified in a way that only God could get credit for. But in order to do that, we have to be willing to cross ethnic barriers like Jesus. We have to be willing to befriend people who have different backgrounds than we do, who may look different than we do, who may live different than we do, who may speak a different language than we do. And we have to be willing to set aside 
our own cultural preferences for the sake of others. Here's our third and last question. What did Jesus command? And the command comes straight from John chapter 4. He tells his disciples, verse 35, he says, Look, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus recognized his disciples' struggle in this story. They had been taught their whole lives that Samaritans were to be avoided, not embraced. But Jesus wanted them to see that they were just as in need of him as the Jewish people. So he simply said, guys, look, lift up your eyes. In other words, look at these people. See them, really see them. There's a whole town of people who are lost. Don't you see them? There's a whole world of people who are lost. Don't you see them? Yes, they may be different than us. They may have a different ethnicity, different beliefs, different customs, but they're people in need just like you. Our command today is the same. Jesus commanded us to open our eyes. Listen to me. Jesus was not colorblind. He saw the woman at the well as a Samaritan, and he addressed her as a Samaritan, speaking to her Samaritan needs. And the truth is, we aren't colorblind either. I know we mean well when we say that. I've said that to a black friend before. We want people to know that we don't define them by the color of their skin, that we treat all people the same, and that's a good thing. But it's not honest, and it's not necessary. We all see color. We see differences among us. It's a part of life, and I think it's actually a good thing because it testifies to the creativity of our God. We can praise God for making all shades of people, all languages of people, all kinds of people. And we can also praise God that our ethnicity, our race, whatever differences we have are not our ultimate identity. Our ultimate identity is found in Christ and that transcends anything else that could possibly divide us. So, as long as we live in a sinful world, we will always deal with issues of racism and partiality. But as we work for gospel unity here in the church, here's the hope we can hold to. We know that the day is coming when we will see this vision for ourselves that John saw in Revelation chapter 7. Verses 9 and 10, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John, the author of Revelation, sees heaven. He doesn't just see a uniform blob of people who all look the same and talk the same. No, he sees nations, tribes, peoples, languages, all focused together, arm in arm, on one thing, bringing glory to the Lamb seated on the throne. That's our prayer. May it be on earth as it is in heaven. May it be in Olathe as it is in heaven. And may it be a blue valley as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me?